Well, I'd like to have you turn with me to Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. It is uh, found in your Old Testament there. And I know your bulletin says we'd be doing selected scriptures. That's a code for I didn't know which one I was going to preach until soon. So we're going to do Jeremiah 1 this morning to look at our topic. And as you're finding Jeremiah 1, I want to quote uh, one of my mentors in the ministry, Dr. Ligon Duncan. He said very astutely that our time is, quote, as toxic a time for faith as has ever existed in my lifetime. That culture is harder on our faith than ever before. One of the negative impacts of our culture, even infiltrating the walls of the church, has been a loss of the grasp of the vital importance of preaching. The preached word of God has, has become almost a lost art. Right now in the Church of Jesus Christ, preaching continues to be a hot topic. It continues to be a, a controversy. You have the growing popularity of numbers of methods of preaching. You have the method called the New Homiletic Preaching Method. And that basically says that authority doesn't lie in the Bible as much as it lies in the experience you have when somebody's talking about the Bible. So in other words, what happens right now at this moment is what's actually authoritative. We would not hold to that. And that method, though, is growing in popularity because it says that now your experience is what actually matters. You have the uh, charismatic preaching idea. And I'm not talking about the charismatic theology. I'm talking about man-centered and, frankly, often pastor-centered preaching. What is pastor-centered preaching? It is preaching that says, I'm here to put on some sort of a show. I'm here to do something for you that draws attention to myself. But, but it's man-centered in that this sort of preaching represents God as a winning lottery ticket, not as the holy triune God of the universe. Then you have what some call analogical preaching. And that's just a big word to mean that the Bible is used as a as an excuse, a pretext to bounce off of, to get to my own ideas. It's reading one Bible verse and then telling you everything that I think, regardless of whether it fits the text or not. The Bible story is just an, an analogy, analogical preaching, just an illustration. And then you have, I, I think, among the most dangerous types of preaching, sentimental preaching. Sentimental preaching is is devotional, it's feelings-oriented preaching. It is a seeker-sensitive style of preaching that says God smiles when we love him, that, that his whole goal is to, to, to make us happy because it makes him happy, that somehow we just made God's day whenever we got saved. This is preaching which doesn't explain the text in its context. It immediately misuses a Bible text to make the text all about me and jump to a light, easy, doable gospel. Sentimental preaching is toxic, it's deadly, it's poisonous because it's soft preaching and soft preaching always produces hardened hearts every time. Now we could lay responsibility for those errors at the feet of unfaithful preachers They've bent to the culture to try to please people instead of pleasing the Lord. But what about the listener's responsibility? What do you do? What is your role? How can you make the very most of the opportunities to hear the preached word of God? The church is spiritually built on the back, on the shoulders of the preached word. That's how the church is built. Preaching is a, a phenomenal invention by God. It is the truth of God expressed in a setting in which we're all together, we're all accountable to one another to listen, and we can't underestimate the power of preaching. We can't underestimate it because we live in a world which promotes any other source of so-called truth except the Word of God, except the revelation of God through Scripture. And so preaching gathers us all together and we're accountable to one, one another. How do, how, do, how do you mean we're accountable to one another? You're all here, and if one of you starts not listening, everyone around you knows, right? And if you're really brave, you elbow that person and say, hey, why are you here? I'm not saying to do that, but that might happen sometimes. 
But the world is throwing every other source of authority at us except Scripture. I'll just give you one example. Secular counseling and psychology represents a set of self-contradicting belief systems. And, and please be very clear about this. Secular counseling and psychology is a reli- religious belief system. It is a system of belief which is counter to Scripture. I'll just give you a few examples. Secular psychology says that you ought to assert your rights. Philippians 2 says to see others is more important than yourself. Secular psychology says to focus on your past, that that's somehow going to solve all your problems. Philippians 3 says forgetting what is behind and pressing on toward what is ahead to the high calling in Christ. Secular psychology says you need to forgive yourself. This is nothing more than self-righteousness. We need God's forgiveness, not our own forgiveness. God is the one that is offended by sin. Secular psychology says that talking will solve everything. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. And yes, in biblical counseling, we talk, but talking isn't the solution. It's the pathway to the solution. And that is the word of God. Secular psychology says you need to find and develop yourself. The Bible says to deny yourself and become like Christ. Secular psychology says to shout your victimhood at all times. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And we're seeing in our world now the the crops, the fruit of this victimhood mentality. Now, everybody's a victim. Everybody has to be part of a a victim group of some sort. A few years ago, uh, the secular magazine Psychology Today published an article called, it's a long title, Does Christianity Harm Children? We need to talk more openly about the abusive aspects of Christian theology. And the author says that teaching children about their sin nature, the sin nature of mankind, is wrong because all people, quote, are intrinsically wonderful, noble, and have boundless goodness inside them. The author says that teaching that Satan exists is abusive. He says Satan does not exist. That's actually a pretty phenomenal statement because that means that in his PhD program in psychology, he traveled the entire known universe in realms both visible and invisible in all times and ages, past and future, to be able to say Satan doesn't exist. And the author goes after the very idea that God would send his own son to die, and he concludes that Christianity is based on an ethic of child abuse. And yet these are the people that we're supposed to go to for answers? They have no answers. You may as well run to Baal like Israel did. You may as well form a golden calf to worship. And so we need the preached word. And so our question today in our summer series, Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions, is how do I make the most of the preached word? How do I make the most of it? Jeremiah 1, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12, plus a few other verses around it. Jeremiah 1, 9 through 12 proves to us two undeniable facts about the preached word of God. The first undeniable fact, preaching matters to God. Preaching matters to God. And I'll give you the second fact now and then I'll repeat them. The second undeniable fact, God has explained how to listen to a sermon. God has explained how to listen to a sermon. So the first undeniable fact, preaching matters to God. It's really our foundation And the second fact, God has explained how to listen to a sermon. First undeniable fact, preaching matters to God. Now under this heading of preaching matters to God, I I never expect you to just take my word for it. I'm going to give you two proofs that preaching matters to God. The first proof is that God initiated preaching of his word. He's the one who initiates the preaching of the word of God. Verse 9 of Jeremiah 1. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now what gets us to verse 9? What's happening here? Jeremiah chapter 1 is the record of Jeremiah's call to prophetic ministry. He's a priest given a special prophetic role as God's spokesman during the reign of King Josiah, the, really the last righteous king of Judah. Jeremiah ministered for at least 41 years Warning and warning and warning. Warning Judah to repent. 
warning of coming judgment, and most notably, he was witness to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587-586 B.C. Now, just a slight side note here. The call of Jeremiah, we, we don't just see his commission, we also see a very real-life illustration of the doctrine of election, that God chooses those that are his. Chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God is motivating Jeremiah for the task at hand. God knew him. This wasn't passive knowledge, but relational connection. It's a connection. God consecrated him. It means to be set apart. It's a Hebrew word that means to make something holy, separated, different, other. And God appointed him. It's a word that means placed. He's given. He is put in his place as a prophet. And so Jeremiah was chosen not only for salvation, but for service. And not just before his birth, but before his conception. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, but notice the scope of his influence. I appointed you prophet to the nations. And we see this in all of the book of Jeremiah, chapters 2 through 45, outline Jeremiah's message to Judah, to the Jews. The chapters 46 through 51, we see God's judgment message to, Israel, to Egypt, rather, and the Philistines, and Moab, Ammon, Edom, Syria, and Babylon. So who's initiating the preached word of God here? It's God. He says, I appointed you. Preaching the word of God was always God's idea. It has always been God's plan. But Jeremiah has something in common with one of his predecessors, Moses, and that is a resistance to the call to preach. Verse 6, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. He was inexperienced. He wasn't eloquent. He wasn't skilled. So God gives three answers to Jeremiah's objection. The first answer is that Jeremiah is preaching by God's authority, not by his own. Verse 7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. So this is God's authority. God gave him authority to speak. The second answer, God would protect Jeremiah for as long as God wants him to preach. In verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. This is a good thing he had this promise. The people to whom Jeremiah was preaching tried to get rid of him in chapter 11, 12, 20, 26, 37, and 38. They even tried to kill him. I've had some hard times in the ministry. None of you have ever tried to murder me before. But God would protect him. So Jeremiah is preaching by the authority of God. Jeremiah will be protected. And third and most important answer that God gives, the source of the message is from God. God didn't ask him to make anything up. God isn't commissioning Jeremiah and saying, go therefore to the people of Israel and give them your educated opinions. He's not saying that. Instead, verse 9, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. God would give the message both of judgment and the blessing to the nations through Jeremiah. The preached word of God is all God's idea. In the seeker-sensitive movement over the past four or five decades, there's been this idea that, that preaching is old-fashioned and we need to move away from it. And that's why you, you see so-called pastors on a platform sitting in, in blue jeans and a t-shirt on a, on a park bench saying, let's have a conversation. Preaching is not conversational. It is be quick to hear, slow to speak, right? It's all God's idea. God appointed this preacher before he was ever born. The message is given by God's authority. The preacher will be protected to give the message until it's done. And God is the source of the message. So the first proof of the fact that preaching matters to God is that God initiates preaching of his word. It's his idea. Now, there's second proof, and this is our kind of foundational point here, second proof that preaching matters to God, God empowers the preaching of his word. God empowers the preaching of his word. God confirms his call of Jeremiah by giving Jeremiah two visions. The second of the two visions, verses 13 through 16, has to do with the content of the message. 
And it culminates in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me of chapter 1. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. I want to focus for a moment on the first vision, which, which confirms Jeremiah's call to preach. Look with me at verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. This is a beautiful vision of the branch of an almond tree. The Hebrew word for almond tree is the same root word for watching or being awake. And they sound almost identical. And so the almond tree is sometimes called the awake tree. Because not only does it sound like the word for awake, but it's the first tree in Israel to to bud and to flower and to bear fruit. It means that spring is what? It's awakening. It's, It's you watch the tree to see that spring is coming. And so God uses a play on words here to associate the almond branch with the fact that God is awake. And he's watching over his word to make sure it accomplishes exactly what he intends. Now, we should be very clear God empowers preaching of his word only. God never promises to empower something that looks like preaching or sounds like preaching. God empowers preaching that is what we would call text-driven. It's driven by the author's intent of the text in the context of all of the redemptive plan of God to bring about the kingdom of God. And this text is to be applied firmly to our lives according to the original intent of the text, Text-driven preaching, if I can put it this way, is driven by what God says in the text, not by a preacher's disrespectful use of a text or abuse of a text. In other words, using the Bible doesn't guarantee biblical preaching. Letting the text speak for itself according to what God intended, that is biblical preaching. Uh, Just as an example, what's Jeremiah's intent here with our text we're reading right now? It's to recall God's call to him, to recount that, and the fact that God would bless the preaching of his word. So our application is a very natural outflow, how to make the most of the preached word, because God promised to bless it. The preached word of God is God's ordained method for communicating the gospel, for hearing from God that has never changed, it will never change. I want you to think for a moment even about New Testament times. In New Testament times, almost no one owned a copy of the Scriptures. And it's estimated that in the Roman Empire, 10% of men were literate and 1% of women were literate. Not illiterate, literate. So preaching was everything. No wonder we're told to be quick to hear. I think it's very important that we have the privilege of reading our own Bibles I have in my office upstairs a shelf that's filled just with Bibles. You probably have the same in your house. You probably have multiple Bibles for every person in your family. But I want to remind you that historically, it's only relatively recently that people have a Bible in their hand. So preaching is is hugely important. When Jesus was born, his birth was a monumental and completely unique event in all of history and God coming to earth as a man, and certainly the ultimate reason that Jesus came was to be the substitutionary sacrifice for sin by his death on the cross. We understand that, we get that. But what was his mission? What was his assignment? What was his calling in his earthly ministry? Mark 1, 14 and 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, it's a Greek word, the main Greek word that means to preach, proclaiming the gospel of God, And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said to his own disciples in Mark 1.38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Luke chapter 4, Jesus read in the synagogue from Isaiah's 61st, 61st chapter prophecy, and it's a prophecy about Christ. And so Jesus is reading aloud about himself that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me too three times. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. The anointing of the Spirit of God on the God-man, Jesus, was to preach, to proclaim. 
the entire Gospel of Matthew is set up, it's structured around five massive times of preaching, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount and going on to four other giant discourses or sermons. The preached Word of God is God's ordained method to extend eternal life to humanity. That is how He does it. Preaching is not here to alter your opinions. It's not even just to alter your behaviors. It is to change the core of your heart. Because what does that do? It corrects your wrong opinions and it alters your behavior. In fact, God's word is so important that God himself puts his word and his name at the same level, the same uh, aura of importance that God's reputation is linked with his word. Psalm 138, rather, verse 2 says, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Like they're tied almost. Listen to what some of the greatest preachers of all time have said about the vital importance of the preached word of God, which God empowers. The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said that preaching is not to whiten tombs, but to open them. John Calvin, the original verse-by-verse expository preacher of the Reformation, he said that the faithful preaching of the word defines the true church. It defines the true church. That if a group of people gather together to hear someone blather on about anything other than biblical preaching, that's not a church. The great evangelist Billy Sunday wrote, quote, The backslider likes the preaching that wouldn't hit the side of a house. While the real disciple is delighted, listen to this, when the truth brings him to his knees. The greatest reformer of all, Martin Luther, wrote that to preach Christ is to feed the soul, to justify it, to set it free, and to save it if it believes the preaching. One of my heroes of the faith, I've spent some time in my life studying him. In my mind, the greatest preacher and theologian in all of American history is Jonathan Edwards, In the 18th century, he preached the message called The True Excellency of a Minister of the Gospel. And he makes the point that the preacher must have light, that is the content of God's word, and you must have heat, that there's a sense of gravity and weightiness and importance to the message. And he says this, If a minister has light without heat and entertains his audience with learned discourses, without a savor of the power of godliness or any appearance of fervency of spirit and zeal for God and for the good of souls, he may gratify itching ears and fill the heads of his people with empty notions, but will not be very likely to reach their hearts or save their souls. And if, on the other hand, he be driven on with a fierce and intemperate zeal and vehement heat without light, He will be likely to kindle the same unhallowed flame in his people and to fire their corrupt passions and affections, but will make them never the better, nor lead them one step towards heaven, but drive them the other way. Let me translate that from the 18th century. The preacher who is a lecturer will create big heads filled with knowledge and cold hearts, light without heat. And the preacher who's a showman without content will deceive his people into thinking that they're saved. And that if, they, if they are believers, they're not going to grow. They're going to stay babies in the faith. So preaching is to be light and heat, empowered by God. And in fact, for Jeremiah here in chapter 1, God was so dedicated to empowering the preaching of the word that he told Jeremiah to prepare himself to preach the word in power and that God would energize his efforts. Verse 17, near the end of the chapter, But you, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord." to deliver you. This is tremendous. God says your preaching is going to be powerful because you're preaching to people who are going to try to murder you. What an invitation. We just sent off Joe Divalbus to Ohio to a church that did not say we're going to murder you when we get here. They, they were nicer about it. But I want you to find notice something here. God never promised Jeremiah would be a popular preacher. 
He just promised he would be a victorious preacher. Preaching matters to God. God initiates the preaching of his word. God empowers the preaching of his word. And we kind of have to have that foundation. God initiates the preaching of his word. God empowers the preaching of his word. Second fact, God has explained how to listen to a sermon. God has explained how to listen to a sermon. Now we're ready to look at how to make the most of the preached word. God gave Jeremiah a commission, a description of what the preached word was going to do, what it was meant to do. And he promises that this would be the effect. In verse 10, God gives metaphors first about construction and then about agriculture. Both of them, construction and agriculture, telling Jeremiah what the preached word is designed to do to the hearts of the listener. Look with me at verse 10. And you'll see all these pictures, these metaphors, these images. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now we can really get to the whole point of this morning now that we've kind of laid the foundation. I want to show you six images to help you listen to a sermon in accordance with the purposes that God has for preaching. And so we'll use these images and kind of name them. Listening to a sermon, first of all, is to be like pulling a weed. It's like pulling a weed. If you've ever taken care of a yard, you have two choices with weeds, only two. You can get rid of it when it's small, small enough that a child can pinch it out of the ground, or you can wait for it to turn into a beast with claws and fangs, and you can get a shovel to pull it out. In either case, it must be pulled out. Now, preaching in America has, for the most part, been tainted by the ear-tickling, man-pleasing sentimentality, which says that the goal of preaching is to provide a chuckle and a smile and, and maybe a thought or two for you to ponder on your way out and forget about right after lunch. And what's the consequence of that kind of preaching? Well, our culture has now been, been inculcated with a culture of listening being passive. That, that the, the, the church attender comes in ready to just sit back and say, make something happen in my life. A culture of expecting to be pleased instead of disturbed, soothed, not riled up, pacified, not troubled. But God said to Jeremiah that the word of God he was to preach was to pluck up. It's a word that means to remove, to drive out, to tear up. Jeremiah was to call the unfaithful Jew to repent and to pluck up pride and lawlessness and sexual immorality and disobedience. Now, when Jeremiah was preaching, by the time his ministry started, the weeds were deep and huge and entrenched. They had the claws and the fangs. They had overgrown the nation in sin. I heard one fellow say that his yard got so bad that the only solution was to sell his house. Just be done with it. And because Judah would, for the most part, ignore Jeremiah, look with me at verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. Why? Because they didn't listen. So what does that mean for you? It means you asking yourself the question, what would the Lord teach me to pluck up? What is the weed that needs to be pulled in the midst of the preaching of God's word? Because I, as much as I love all of you and I'm thankful for you, I am not here to make you happy. I'm not here to make you feel good. The first priority is to pluck up. What's the weed? Is it a sharp tongue? Is it a low view of Christ? Is it a high view of self? Is it a dismissive view of the gathered worship of God's people? Is it a rebellious spirit that can't submit to authority? Is it a, a hardened heart toward my own sin? Is it a lazy approach to my walk with Christ? Is it, maybe worst of all, an unteachable spirit? John Calvin said this, In forming an estimate of sins, we are often imposed upon by imagining that the more hidden, the less heinous they are. In other words, the small little hidden weeds aren't less dangerous and destructive to your walk with Christ 
than the large obvious sins that everyone can see. The small ones are just as dangerous. And so no matter the text and no matter the topic, you should listen with the intent, asking the Lord, what is the weed you would have me pull this day? But that's just the beginning. Listening to a sermon is to be like pulling a weed. It's also to be like tearing down an idol. Tearing down an idol. God tells Jeremiah that the preached word is to break down. It's, it's a word that means to pull down, to tear down. It's the same word used in Exodus 34, 13. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars of idolatry. The good king Josiah in bringing reform to Judah 2 Kings 23, beginning in verse 12, says the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled them down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. Idol worship. Idol worship is the sin which God most warned Israel about as he made covenant with them and brought them to their land. In fact, God's last warning to Israel before entering the promised land, is the book of Deuteronomy. And listen to this repetition. Deuteronomy 5.7, You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6.14, You shall not go after other gods. Deuteronomy 8.19, If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I warn you today that you shall surely perish. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 31. Don't worship idols. Don't worship idols. Don't worship idols. This is a massive warning to Israel, and this crosses all boundaries of covenant and time and testaments. This is a principle which permeates all of Scripture. If you've read the epistles of Paul, he, he ends them with warmth and with delight. John doesn't work that way. The apostle John warns the believer in the very last verse of 1 John, after all kinds of encouragements about the, the, the security of your salvation and that if you have believed on the Son of God, you are saved for all time. And he has this glorious encouragement and you might, you might think he would end like Paul, grace and peace to you, I love all of you. But he doesn't. The last words are, little children, keep yourself from idols. And you want to turn the page and go, surely that wasn't the last sentence, but it is. And here's the scary part he doesn't define idols what does that mean it means that you get on your knees and you ask the lord to help you find them what is an idol an idol is anything that interferes with your worship of god anything that interferes with your worship of god anything you're willing to sin to keep it or anything you're willing to sin to avoid it those can become idolatrous influences in your life. Now, this isn't to say that the true believer in Christ can never fully turn away from Christ. We can't do that. But you can, at times, give those idols a little bit more attention than they deserve. What did King Josiah do? He tore them down, broke them in pieces, turned them into dust, and threw them in the river. That's the standard. Because giving attention to idols will keep you from full, joyful fellowship in the Lord. Ultimately, it boils down to a choice to act like a worshiper of Christ or a worshiper of self. And it's the preached word of God that the Holy Spirit uses as a spotlight. Well, I don't think I have any idols. And then the preached word happens and boom, there it is, right? Shining in your heart. And you go, yep, there it is. Now, you might say, what's the difference between a weed and an idol? Why does Jeremiah make that difference? The difference between a weed and an idol, listen very carefully, an idol is a weed that you've decided you want to keep around a little longer. Preaching is to dig deep, and if you don't want the weed pulled up, then we'll knock down the idols. Listening to a sermon is to be like pulling a weed, tearing down a, a, an idol. Third, listening to a sermon is to be like demolishing a building. Demolishing a building. If this is your first Sunday at Grace, you're coming in going, I just came in here to feel good. I don't know what this is all about. Demolishing the building. God proclaimed to Jeremiah that the preached word was to destroy. It means, it can mean to perish or die, but in this context, it means to make something unusable, to ruin it. This is very important because this is not talking about preaching being somehow to renovate a life that's already shaped by the world. It's not talking about tweaking, making adjustments, doing a modification. 
It's not talking about that. This isn't a makeover of sinful behaviors or attitudes. This is a wrecking ball swinging to just take out everything that you previously held to. It dismantles, it flattens everything which contradicts the Lord's will as revealed in Scripture. Just one little simple example of trying to inculcate Scripture into what the world has already taught you. I'm amazed how many believers in Christ don't know what the Bible says about child-rearing. I think one of the most devastating examples of trying to renovate a philosophy that's already been shaped by the world is in, in child-rearing. Our culture has now made it immoral and in many cases illegal to discipline our children, to stand up to them, and to spank them. Even training programs in churches almost always talk about spanking in whispered tones as the last and final resort. That you build up your child's self-esteem since he's a little sinner who needs to be told how great he is, and then on the way out, and if if you have to, spank him, and then you run. Well, what does the Bible say? Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son. If you do not spank your children, you hate them, according to God. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Proverbs 23, 14, if you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. This isn't saying that by spanking your children, you will get them saved, but it is saying that you are softening their hearts, softening their souls, that God has given you a part to play. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof. Give wisdom. What is the rod and reproof? The rod is discipline. Reproof is telling them why they got spanked. We're not trying to renovate a worldly, unbiblical view of parenting. The world has zero input into how we're to parent our children. You demolish it, you bring the wrecking ball in, and then you look at Scripture. The preached Word of God is meant to demolish all that is dishonoring to God. Now, you may be noticing a progression of intensity here in Jeremiah 1. We've moved from pulling a weed to tearing down an idol, to demolishing and annihilating and bulldozing and bringing a wrecking ball in against anything that taints and pollutes the fellowship with the Lord that you enjoy. But even those first three are somewhat impersonal. You could sit back and say, I get it. I get the pulling of the weed. I get it. I get the tearing down of the idol. I get it. I get the the bulldozing, the annihilating, the, the wrecking ball. But now it gets personal. Listening to a sermon, fourth, is to be like beating an opponent. Beating an opponent. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. It's a word that means to throw someone down in the sense of defeating them. The preached word of God is meant to defeat the enemies of righteousness in your life. It's a metaphor of battle, of conflict, of violence. We see this metaphor given in detail in the New Testament concerning our sanctification, our growth and holiness. It's not something that happens passively. Hebrews 12, 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, we're to be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Passively hope that something will make that go away. No, it's resist him. Firm in your faith. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It just feels negative, doesn't it? That preaching is to accomplish the result of pulling a weed, tearing down an idol, demolishing a building, and beating an opponent down, beating an enemy. Why is it so negative? John Chrysostom, the 4th century preacher, the golden mouth preacher is what Chrysostom means. It's a nickname. He, he wrote of his work as a preacher. And he said this, My work is like that of a man who's trying to clean a piece of ground into which a muddy stream is constantly flowing. When you listen to a sermon, your goal is not just to grasp the information. You're asking the Lord to use the preached word Empowered by the Holy Spirit to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. Why? 
Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is a surgeon's scalpel that is meant to cut away the sin and continue to cut into that which would interfere with your fellowship with the Lord. One of my heroes of the faith, in fact, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about him tonight, the greatest British preacher of the 20th century, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he used to say that he spent a lifetime making friends and enemies by preaching the same sermon. I want to camp on that for a minute. For some of you, a sermon is going to make you angry. It's going to irritate you. It may ruffle your feathers. So what do you do? Well, it may be that you don't know what you don't know. I find that often. When somebody gets angry at a sermon, they, they have a limited amount of knowledge on a topic and they believe that that is the comprehensive amount of knowledge that you need to make a judgment on that topic. So what do you do? James knew that people would get angry at sermons. And so he said this, step one, obey James 1, 19 and 20. I read it earlier this morning. Here's what he says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is very important. We take this out of the context, probably the top 10 verses we ever take out of context. The context is the preached word of God. It is listening to a sermon. Don't get angry. Be quick to hear. Second step. If preaching makes you angry, be like the Bereans of Acts 17.11. They heard the gospel for the very first time. And here's what the text says. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This was not a typical emotional reaction to a sermon because something doesn't fit your experience, your background, or your opinion. Now, this is them taking what Paul and Silas preached and going home and comparing the preaching to the scriptures in an honest and diligent and studied way. And by the way, the fact that they were doing this every day tells us that they were very carefully considering context and history and understanding their understanding of the scripture. They weren't making emotional decisions. This is very important because every proper sermon is an argument. It's a case study. And this case study presents evidence and conclusions from that evidence. The Bereans heard the conclusions. They went home. They examined the evidence themselves. This is totally great. Everybody should do this. This is good hermeneutics. It's good Bible study method. Let me tell you some things that are not good Bible study methods. Your experience. Your experience is not a hermeneutic. Listen carefully. We do not judge the word of God by our experience. We judge our experience by the word of God. But I was there. I saw it happen. I heard about it. I felt something. Doesn't matter. We judge it by the word of God. Something else that's not a good Bible study method, your emotions. Just because something made you mad doesn't mean you're right. Because if something made you mad, it means that you thought about it for about a second, right? It may mean that a sermon has poked a sensitivity in your life that needs to be corrected, or dare I say, pushed down an idol that you liked and you want to put it back up. And something else that's not a good Bible study method is history. Just because a lot of people believe something doesn't make it true. History is not a hermeneutic. In our Grace Connect membership class, we always try to encourage our newer folks to let it be okay to be learners rather than simply looking to hear things you already agree with. That's, that's pointless to you. That doesn't help you. Now, my commitment to you, the reason we take time in preaching is that I will endeavor never to make flippant statements about sensitive issues without a massive quantity of biblical argumentation behind that. What the Bible says. Preaching is to be explaining what the Bible says regardless of how we feel about it. So why did James say that a listener to a sermon should be quick to hear and slow to anger. Because, as he said, the goal of preaching is to produce righteousness in you. And he says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Can I put it this way? The minute you get mad, your sanctification stops. The minute you let anger seep in, your arrogance just topped any sanctification and you're done listening. Your anger will never lead to Christ-likeness. 
your searching of the scriptures and considering the biblical argumentation you've heard, that will lead to Christ-likeness. I'll give you an example. A few years ago when we did our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we spent part of a message on Christian mythology about divorce. And the top myth being the common saying, God hates divorce. And I still remember the looks on some of your faces when I told you that the Bible never says that God hates divorce. Some of you are like, well, I'm out of here then, because of course the Bible says that. We spent a long time proving that this is a Christian slogan based on Malachi 2.16, which is based on a traditional mistranslation of that verse. The traditional translation is something like, I hate divorce, says the Lord. The problem is is that there's no first-person verb. There's no I in there. It's a third-person verb in Hebrew which says, the man who hates his wife and divorces her covers his garment with violence. It's in the context of speaking of divorce for sinful reasons. We spent a long time on that, making a very strong argument from numerous different hermeneutic angles. And the reason for that is that emotion and Christian slogans and your personal experience and history cannot replace a sound biblical argument. They can't do it. Just because you feel strongly about something doesn't make it right. I feel strongly that the high temperature tomorrow should be 68. It's not going to happen. Because preaching causes emotion, doesn't it? That's why James said to be quick to hear and slow to anger. And if I could speak to some of you here who have been here for a month or for six months or maybe as long as a year, and you've come from an atmosphere where you're not hearing the preached word of God in detail, some things are going to make you angry. Some things are going to grieve you because you're going to say, why did I never hear this? Why didn't anybody teach me this? Some things are not going to agree with your experience. What does James say to do? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Historically, when I make somebody mad and they send me an email, you know when the email gets sent? Sunday night. They didn't think, they didn't study. Now you're going to say, great, I can't ever send Stephen an email on Sunday nights anymore. (laughs) Oh, Jeremiah, he gives us God's wisdom here. He's showing us that the first part of preaching is to demolish your heart. Now that the goal of demolition has been accomplished, now that your heart's been softened and tenderized, now the work of building Christ-likeness in you can really begin in earnest. God continues his metaphors. that Now listening to a sermon is to be like remodeling your house. What do you do before you remodel? You, you clear the room. You do demolition first. He says in verse, six, in verse 10 that it is to build. Literally means to develop or to rebuild. This is exactly the pattern of response that we see in the very first Christian sermon in the church of Jesus Christ, Peter's Acts 2 Pentecost sermon. He's preaching to thousands of people who have witnessed the miraculous coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. And first, he does the work of demolition. He's preaching to Jews. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. Then he goes on to say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God He will soon make all those who are opposed to Christ pay with their lives that God the Father will make the enemies of Christ his footstool. And he demolished their hearts. Do you remember how they responded? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This was the original sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon. Now the preacher rebuilds, remodels, Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The preached word of God isn't just to negatively tear away sin. It's to replace it with thoughts and attitudes and behaviors that bear a striking resemblance to Christ. If you will purposefully and frequently expose yourselves to biblical preaching as we've already defined it, You will tend to have soft hearts. You will tend to be sensitive to what Scripture says to you. There will be a tenderness. There will be an affection for the things of the Lord. Because you're not afraid to knock down the walls of faulty theology or a low view of God or a high view of self. Now you've become sensitive. You've become perceptive. You've become wise. Why? Because hard preaching creates soft hearts. 
And finally, God says to Jeremiah, listening to a sermon, is to be like planting a seed. Planting a seed. This is the agricultural metaphor. To plant, in verse 10, it means to place seeds or, or even to establish something. This is now the long-range effort, the long-range result of the preached word. That the preached word over a period of time has, has been planting seeds of love for Christ, obedience, humility, joy, submission, love for one another, concern for the lost, fruit of the Spirit. And over time, these seeds have begun to take root and you can't even trace the development of it. If you've planted a seed and it turns into a little bush which turns into a tree, you, you can't remember how that all occurred. As you've listened to sermon after sermon after sermon, I, I was talking to James the other day, I've preached somewhere in the vicinity of 1,000 sermons at Grace Bible Church. Those have, those have interwoven in your hearts and they have, they have become strong and they've grown up. You might not have heard a sermon about the right use of your tongue in six months, but you find yourself using your tongue more rightly, and you don't even know why. I know why. Because the Word of God implanted in your heart from any text, any part of Scripture, has an impact on all of your life. These last two metaphors of building and planting. See if this sounds familiar. Building and planting. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Same two metaphors. Why is the image of sowing a seed at the end of God's list to Jeremiah? Why is this the last one? I want you to think about what a farmer does before he plants a seed. Before he ever plants a seed, a good farmer prepares the soil, doesn't he? He clears it of garbage and weeds and old leftover roots. He plows the soil. He turns it over and over and over again until it's soft and ready and able to receive the seed of the word. If you're newer at Grace Bible Church, you might feel like you're getting plowed every week. All I have to say is accept it. Receive it. Because as the seeds of the word of God get implanted in ever uh, more cleansed soil, they'll take root and what will they produce? They'll produce righteousness. That's what James says. I'd like to finish our time this morning getting intensely practical with you on the most, getting the most out of the preached word. And the way I'd like to organize this is I want to just give you some time markers. I'm going to give you five of them on how to get the most out of the preached word. And this is, this is very practical. First time marker is long before the sermon. Long before the sermon. If you walk into church and you're 10 minutes into a sermon and you're thinking, all right, I got to get my brain here. You're a little bit too late. So long before the sermon, what can you do? First of all, read or reread Ken Ramey's book, Expository Listening. Expository Listening. At my request, our Grace Equipped bookstore has a bunch of extra copies. They're about 30% less than Amazon right now for the next couple of weeks. But read Expository Listening. Long before the sermon, get in the habit of praying for your own mind and heart. Pray and ask the Lord to pluck up and to tear down, to destroy, to overthrow. Long before the sermon, don't fall into the trap of thinking that your best days of learning and growth are behind you, that other people need this more than you. You need today what has been preached today, regardless of how long you've been in the Lord. And then long before the sermon, start getting prepared for the Lord's Day on Saturday evening and get enough rest for Sunday. I'm amazed how many people go to bed early on Sunday night so they can be fresh at work and then stay up till 4 a.m. watching movies on Saturday night. Here's a second time marker. We'll call it the sermon's beginning. The sermon's beginning. First of all, get spiritually ready for the message. You're ready to be humble and, and to, as, as the plucking and the breaking down and the destroying and the overthrowing happens, and it'll happen differently for all of you. We've said this before, that I have the privilege of, of pulling back a bow loaded with hundreds of arrows, and they all find their mark. It clears the way for building and planting, that spiritual preparation. Don't walk into a sermon saying, uh, let's see what this guy's got. You're done. You're wasting your time. Walk into a sermon saying, God, pluck something else out. I want to be more like you. At the sermon's beginning, get mentally ready for the message. A sermon is an argument to demonstrate a, a particular point or to engage your mind to a particular truth. 
engage your own mind, focus on purpose. And, and boy, we're fighting an uphill battle with that in our culture, aren't we? An experienced preacher spends significant time crafting the first few minutes of a message to convince you that you need to listen. This isn't time filler. There's always a reason, there's always a purpose, and that's to engage your full, complete attention. It's to get your, the wheels of your mind turning and going in the right direction. That's why we sing and sing and sing. It prepares your heart, prepares your mind before we hear the preaching. Here's a third time marker, the sermon's middle. Pray as you listen. You can do two things at once. Pray Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Stay focused in the midst of distractions and endeavor not to be a distraction if at all possible. The preached word of God is holy. It's a sanctified event. You know why this pulpit is so big? It's so that you can't see my knees knocking. I'm not nervous about preaching. I'm nervous about saying the wrong thing. And if God's going to strike anybody with lightning, I'm closest to the top right now. Pray as you listen. Encourage others to listen by not being easily distractible. Can I show you what happens to 90% of most congregations when somebody makes a noise? What was that? Like your life is not going to be the same if you don't look over at what that noise was. Don't be a distraction. And how about this time marker, the sermon's ending. The sermon's ending is perhaps the most important couple, uh, couple of minutes. For, for me as a preacher, I labor over what should be said last. Preachers sometimes spend hours praying over and crafting the final 60 seconds of a message. Could I encourage you, don't rob yourself of those important few moments by deciding you're done listening. Stay all in. Stay there. Stay focused. When enough people decide they're done listening and begin distracting everyone around them, I have to regain your attention, right? And I'm grateful that doesn't really happen much here, but I I have preacher friends who say, I can't say the words in conclusion because they're done. So I have to surprise them with the end and just say the end and then pray. (laughs) But stay all in to the last amen. The last minute or two might be that final arrow coming at your heart. And if you decide, well, I'm done, I'm going to get ready to go because I'm hungry and I'm going to lunch. And that arrow flies right by you because you missed it. You stay still. And you open the armor of whatever has been protecting your heart and let that last arrow hit. And how about this time marker? Long after the sermon. Long after the sermon. In nearly every message you hear at Grace Bible Church, if you'll take time to even just note the cross-references that we use on any given Sunday message, you're going to get a few dozen at least. Today I used 45. That's pretty normal. Either go through them yourself or better yet, join a sermon-based small group. That is a terrific resource to drive the nails of truth deeply into your heart. I would urge you long after the sermon to get in the habit of listening to all the messages here, even when you have to be gone. We ask our leaders to do that. We ask our leaders to make an effort to listen to every message that's preached so they can catch the flow of a topic, to be in the same lane as all the members who listen to every message. I know for many of you, taking notes is daunting while you're in church. You may have four little kids you're trying to corral at the same time. We get that. But if taking notes is daunting while you're here, take notes as you re-listen online. The benefit is incalculable. And how about this, long after the sermon, after hearing the preached word, pray for the truths to continue to be deeply driven into your soul. Talk about the sermon over lunch. Talk about the Sunday evening sermon, the last thing in your day. I've shared this with you before, I I love sharing the word with you. It is the greatest love I have in the ministry. And so my prayer every Sunday evening, really the last thing I think about before I go to sleep every Sunday evening, is I pray that those nails that got driven into your heart continue to be pounded in and that they stay for you to be forever changed by the word of God. Here's my prayer for you now. My prayer for you is, That may your life be characterized and marked by listening to preaching, which not only shows Christ to your mind and to your hearts, but shows Christ lived out in a sanctified, well-rooted life. That's my prayer for you because it is most honoring to Christ. And if we will continue to do that, watch God work through us. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and we bless you. How amazing it is that all of us here in our culture, in our time, in the 21st century are holding in our hands the very revelation of God himself. In a Bible that we can buy for 20 or 30 dollars, we know the beginning of all things. We know the character of God. We know how to know him. And we know the end of all things. And so, Lord, it's our prayer, it's our hope, it's our, it's our belief that you will bless your people as much as they are willing to hear the preached word of God and to respond. May you pluck up those weeds. May you tear down our idols. May you destroy and, and demolish those things that we hold dear. Lord, we ask you then to build in us Christ-likeness. We think of our brother, the Apostle Paul, who says that he is in, he labors until Christ is formed in you. That's our prayer. I pray that the culture of our church would be that of listening to the word of God, of being those who are deeply committed to your word and put it into practice, live it out, and let you work through us. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.